This is Edward Mazur, chairman of the City Club of Chicago. Our program today was dedicated to Illinois Human Services, the theme being we're not out of the woods yet. We had three people who spoke to the City Club this afternoon. The Honorable Susan Mendoza, the Comptroller of the State of Illinois. She is the state's Chief Fiscal and Accountability Officer. She first took office amid the state's unprecedented two-year budget impasse two years ago. Comptroller Mendoza was joined by Andrea Durbin, who's the CEO of Illinois Collaboration on Youth, or ICOI. She leads ICOI's work to improve the lives of children, youth, and their families. Prior to becoming CEO, she was the Policy and Advocacy Director for ICOI. And our third panelist is Lauren Wright, the Executive Director of the Illinois Partners for Human Services, a coalition of more than 800 human service organizations that is in every legislative district in Illinois, trying to provide vital services in mental health, disability rights, child care, youth advocacy, workforce development, and immigration services. We're two years removed from the Illinois' historic budget impasse, and state human service providers are still in recovering mode facing challenges that are new and challenges that are old. The impact of the budget impasse was devastating, causing providers to restrict offerings, cut staff, and even close completely, while directly affecting an estimated one million Illinoisans. The term human services, discussed by our panelists, encompasses a range of occupations and functions that support the well-being of individuals beyond primary health care. Providers give assistance to the disabled, care for seniors. They support people struggling with substance abuse and those in need of food and shelter. Mental health, after-school programming, food delivery, and care for the developmentally disabled fall under the purview of the state's providers. The state's providers are looking for a sustainable path into the future while they face historically low funding levels for the work they perform. Changing state contracting rules, funding shortfalls, unpredictive revenue streams, and other challenges will make for an uneven road forward. Well, thank you so much. Good morning. Is it afternoon, I guess, right? Yes, but whatever. It's just so bright in here. It feels like it's morning. Um, I'd like to start by, first of all, acknowledging uh, part of my team that's here. Certainly, we have a lot of employees in the controller's office, but all we were given access to was one table today. I'm kidding. But I do have a wonderful table there in the middle of the room. If you guys could stand up really quick. Got Abdin and Cesar and Boa and Kevin and Jayette and Simon and Max and Andrew and Lisa and Allison. Thanks for being here. But um, I'll keep you inside. I could not have done the job that we've tried to do in helping to keep the state from falling off the rails during that budget impasse, which was so catastrophic, without an amazing team behind me. And every day I'm just so lucky. I pinch myself sometimes thinking about what an honor it is to get not only to serve the people of the state of Illinois, but to do so uh, as a leader of the most amazing staff I could ever hope and dream to have. So I thought I had it good in the clerk's office with my team, but this team is spectacular. And really what you guys do every day improve so many people's lives, and I think the people that are in this room, for the most part, can attest to that. So thank you. I also am missing one important person from being at that table, and you guys probably know him. Some of you might know uh, Patrick Corcoran on my staff. And he, just a few months ago, believe it or not, had um, 
His wife was expecting, they were expecting a baby, their second, and she ended up uh, having complications, uh, had to, I think, deliver at around 29 weeks. Um, But believe it or not, it is like a miracle. That baby is perfect, super healthy, and gets to go home today. I mean, well before what the actual even due date was. So, So he's at home with his new baby probably right about now. So we're very happy for him. But anyway, I'd like to start by giving thanks to our human service providers, our treatment counselors, our daycare providers, our Meals on Wheels delivery persons, therapists, after-school activity supervisors, nurses. These are the people who are out there for us, caring for our most vulnerable citizens day in and day out. And they're there because they love our friends and our loved ones, uh, and we need folks to take care of folks like that. And these are folks to stand up who stand up every day to be there for them. We don't have enough opportunities to honor these people, so let's please, before we do anything else, give everyone who serves on the front lines a big round of applause. And I'm so pleased and proud to be joined today by Andrea Durbin, the CEO of Illinois Collaboration on Youth, and Lauren Wright, Executive Director of Illinois Partners for Human Service. Uh, She recently took over for Judith uh, Gettner, who was a legend. So we want to thank Judith for her many years of service as well. And when I was hearing the bios earlier, I mean, I looked over to Andrea, and I'm like, when do you have time to do all this stuff? (laughs) Right? It's an old bio. Whatever. (laughs) But... But listen, Andy and Lauren, they are fighters. And between the two of them, they represent hundreds of human service providers throughout Illinois. When I took office in December of 2016, I can't believe it's almost three years ago. Illinois was in fiscal anarchy. I came here and I told you all about it. It was depressing. We were putting out fires all over the place, and it was people like Andy and Lauren who were on the front lines helping direct the meager resources that we had at our disposal. We maximized those resources as best as we could, and some organizations, I'm sad to say, didn't make it. But the people who fought the hardest for their people were our state's human service providers. It was the people who provided shelter to survivors of domestic violence, even though they weren't being paid. The counselors who worked with people in treatment for substance abuse. I inherited a controller's office that prioritized government contractors, and left bills for critical services. In fact, I remember being right here at this podium talking about how four days, or I should say, few days after taking office, I realized that four days before my predecessor left, she transferred $71 million out of the general revenue fund. I broke that story here to pay for high-priced consultants instead of nursing homes and hospice centers who had gone more than six months without payment. So I reversed those priorities so that now... Illinois social service agencies know, the folks in this room know, that they are among the first in line on an ongoing basis to get paid so that the state's most vulnerable, the people who need us the most, can get the services that they need the quickest. Now, I have traveled the state visiting these domestic violence centers, child care centers, nursing homes, addiction centers, hospitals, hearing their stories about how they had to cut services, let staff go, turn away people who needed their help. And I joined other women for a night out not that long ago on the sidewalk this summer to call attention to the need for more teenless homeless facilities in Chicago. All of us should be concerned about homelessness in Illinois. 
at the Lincoln Prairie Behavioral Health Center in Springfield. They told me how many more youth with behavioral health issues need to be helped. They'd like to help so many more youth, but they didn't have the ability to do so because they were spending most of their time fighting managed care organizations about how many days treatment would actually be covered for those services. At the Well Center in Jacksonville, I was able to buy them a couple more months of time on what should have been the celebration of their 50th year in service, but instead became a few more times to get their financial things in order and give their folks an opportunity to be able to look for another job because rather than celebrate 50 years in service, they closed their doors as a result of being a victim of the budget impasse. Now, a new center has opened on that site, but once you have to let go of those career service employees and they have to go out and look for other jobs in the industry, you know, it's hard to build up that infrastructure that has now been lost, you know, and, and at the end of the day, people, the people who need these services are the most impacted. Now, these types of entities uh, have been starved of resources during the historic budget impasse, 70, 736 days of hell. And the days that came after that aren't heaven, they're more like purgatory. Now, this was done by design by a former governor in pursuit of an extreme agenda that, to put it kindly, just did not put people first. The commitment and passion of our service providers in the face of years of unprecedented circumstances, it motivated me. It fired me up. It was what fueled my ability to stand up when a lot of other elected officials were just watching. But it mattered that we stand up when it was most difficult to do so and that we fight for our service community who is out there every day in the trenches just trying to make sure that their constituents, the people that they serve, that their mission was so centered around, had one more day to have one more chance. Their stories touched my heart. And they shaped a narrative that helped, frankly, to end the budget impasse. So again, thank you to all of you. You were on the front lines of that fight. We highlighted the challenges facing our human service provider in our most recent issue of Fiscal Focus, which is amazing reading. And you think I'm kidding. I'm not. It is awesome. And I would encourage all of you to take, you know, when you're driving back home or whatever, unless if you are literally driving, but if you're in the passenger seat, take a look at this. It's, it's really incredible stuff. And, um, and it's important that we have these, these um, not just these stories, not just this particular fiscal focus, which of course is along the lines of what we want to talk about um, with the safety net being dismantled, but every few months or so we're going to be putting out <clears throat> more uh, publications like this because I think it's really important to share the truth of what's happening in state government with the public and to give you an honest assessment of where we're at, maybe where we were and where we need to be and potentially hopefully how we get there. We've published two issues since doing so. The first one was about managed care organizations. This one is about the dismantling of the social safety network. Um, and I'm really glad that Lolita Diedrichsen, a former controller, started this and unfortunately it it went dark 
during the dark ages, which is what I call the 736-day budget impasse. So we brought it back to life, and I would urge you to read it, not just this one, but, you know, just keep abreast of when we publish these because they're pretty interesting things, and they're all based on facts and figures. And this particular one I really enjoy because we, it's not my opinion, we talk directly to the providers and ask them to weigh in on how the budget impasse impacted them and what some of the challenges are. Um, and tell the story from their vantage point, not not mine. I think it's more important to tell the story from the people that actually felt the, the pain the most. Um, now, while our, while our human service providers certainly deserve our respect, admiration, and applause, they deserve a lot more than that. They need help, right? I'm sure you would agree. This summer, the Illinois General Assembly came together to pass an unprecedented amount of legislation. They passed a 40 million-dollar budget. New legislation approved the sale of cannabis. Don't get too excited, folks, all right? I think I'm talking to a really hard-working group of people here, because anytime I mention the word cannabis, it always gets like the loudest applause of any room you're in. It's kind of like, hmm, kind of know what you guys are thinking, right? So you guys are straight-laced. Yes. But anyway, uh, we will be getting at some point, if all goes well, a Chicago casino as part of a gaming expansion. And legislators approved a $45 billion with a B capital plan. Despite all of that, I'm sorry to report that we're still fighting for our human service providers. So you heard a lot of cool things that happened there, but you didn't really hear a massive emphasis on human service providers. Many of them are still struggling, and that means that they are borrowing to make ends meet. Right when I walked in here, someone came up to me and said I had to extend another line of credit. That shouldn't be happening. Now, this means that they're eking out every single dollar just to make simple things called payroll. Shouldn't be happening. More than ever, I think there's a clear need to invest in our state's human infrastructure. We talked about a $45 billion capital plan. I think it's their turn here to finally have and deserve a human capital plan. Don't you think so? So human capital is something that I'd definitely like to see legislators prioritize next. Now, you might be wondering, well, how are we going to pay for that? Because, of course, that sounds good. Everybody can agree that these are things that, from a moral compass perspective, we want to see. But how do we pay for it? I've got two responses. One is, how do we not pay for it? Because the other is, you're already paying for it. This is the important thing to remember when it comes to human services and the lack thereof. We are paying for them one way or another. Hard statistics show that funding for human services as a percentage of the state's general revenue fund is at a 20-year low, dropping from 26% in 1997, which I would argue is not that good anyway, to less than 16% in 2017. More than that, prioritizing the human services safety net and helping people who cannot help themselves is a reflection of our values as a society, and to reject them is, frankly, a sign of a broken moral compass. If you are a dollars and cents person, let's say you don't even care about people, but you care about money, I found that doing the morally correct thing is more often than not the fiscally sound thing to do as well. Certainly when it comes to funding human services, because funding for human services saves tax dollars. At the Wells Center, that organization, that center that I mentioned, was supposed to be celebrating 50 years of service and instead closed their doors. They showed me how a dollar that we invested in them now helps someone break their addiction, but not only that dollar investment, saved taxpayers $14 in the long run that would have been spent in emergency room care or um, so hospitalizations or worse yet, 
incarceration. So, you know, I asked people then, I remember giving this speech uh, once before and we were updating the budget stuff, but I asked people, look, I mean, either way you're going to pay for this. When someone, and believe me, people have said to me, I don't want my money going to support a junkie. And we're talking about addiction centers. And while I wouldn't use those terms myself, I mean, I think it's important to just look that person in the eye and say, guess what? Your money's going there whether you like it to or not. Would you rather I take a dollar out of your pocket when you're watching or 14 when you're not? So let's just do the right thing, both from a fiscal perspective, but even more importantly, from a moral one. And at the end of the day, we're doing better for everyone. Now, during the state's fiscal crisis together, we called for a comprehensive budget solution. And we got... We got that over the wishes of the previous governor when we broke the budget stalemate. We took steps in the right direction with Governor Pritzker's first budget, increasing funding for human service providers in the 2 to 3 percentage range. But ultimately, one of the best, most efficient ways to invest in service providers is going to be through the passage of a fair tax, which we are going to be hearing a lot about over the next year. It will be, as a matter of fact, on the ballot next year when we go to vote for a better president. I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. So what we need to do now is that we need a sustainable long-term budget solution. As both Illinois' chief fiscal officer and a person who cares deeply about our human service network, it's critical that the wealthy and corporations who can afford to pay more pay their fair share. The New York Times recently wrote that the 400 wealthiest Americans last year paid a lower total tax rate, federal, state, and local taxes, than any other income group. You might ask, how can that be, right? But the tax rate on the richest 400 households was just 23%. The overall rate was 70% in 1950 and 47% in 1980. I'm not necessarily advocating those percentages, but just to give you some context in what it was versus what it is today and what other people who make less money are paying as a percentage of their income. That's the opposite of sustainable, and I'm hopeful that a fair tax can put the state on a positive trajectory. Now, recent polls show that even half of people who identify as Republican or lean Republican are in favor of a graduated income tax, or in essence, the fair tax. Now, we've made some important strides in shoring up our finances. We issued $6 billion worth of bonds, slashing our interest from 12% down to only 3.5%, saving taxpayers 4 to $6 billion, saving taxpayers 4 to $6 billion by doing that deal, and using those bonds proceeds responsibly to pay down our bill backlog, which was $16.7 billion, is today right around $6 billion. We've maximized federal matching grant opportunities to pay down billions in Medicaid bills. And the last budget raised fees and asked taxpayers to shoulder new costs. There were cuts that were implemented from a staffing level across state agencies and constitutional offices, including my own. So I think not just asking people to do more, but each agency and each constitutional should do the most that they can. Uh, But these moves, you know, perhaps can give us some wiggle room, but they certainly haven't cleared the decks. There will be new revenues coming from new sources such as gaming and cannabis, but all of that combined is not going to be enough to pay down the state's bill backlog. Meet pension obligations, which are clearly humongous. Maintain and grow infrastructure and cover the costs of the state's critical needs. And during one of my visits here, somebody during the question and answer just said, well, why don't you just pass legalization of marijuana? It's going to solve all our financial problems. Clearly, I think they were smoking some marijuana when they asked that question. <laughs> but the point being, look, to put this in perspective, for people who aren't crunching the numbers here, that's my job to do that. 
we do have legalization of marijuana now. Even if the highest projected amount of revenue came in from marijuana, which I don't believe this number to be accurate, but let's just say half a billion dollars. We're not going to see that, caveat, but let's just say in, in Vento land, we had half a billion dollars. You know, the governor has been kind to set aside 10% of that to, to pay for the bill backlog, right? So you get $50 million, sounds like a lot of money, towards a $6 billion backlog. That's where we're at, folks. And we're way better right now than we were the last time I updated you on the state's finances. So would I love to have $50 million? Sure. It's a rounding error when you're talking about what we really need to raise to pay down that bill backlog. So I just think it's important to share that information so people can put this in perspective. Additional gaming revenue, additional marijuana revenue, it's all great. I mean, I'd rather have more than less, but we still we need to do some fundamental structure change here to, to get to where we can actually fund our resources appropriately. So let me make something clear, and then I'm going to turn it over to introduce our panelists here. Even though we have roundly criticized the policies of the past and expressed a desire to never, ever, ever go back to the rounder era of forced austerity, one way that we could end up in a similar scenario is by refusing to acknowledge the long-term revenue challenges faced by this state. As we've seen, when there's not enough money to go around, a lot of decision-making is taken from our hands. We saw firsthand the critical decisions end up in the hands of the courts because we didn't have a legal budget. And anyone who isn't prioritized by the courts ends up having to wait in a long, long line. We can never do that again. There's a lot of budget pressure across all levels of government, despite the fact that staffing and spending are lean. Our advocates can certainly attest to that. But tax reform, including a tax break for working families, provides us a sustainable path forward where we don't have to be consistently looking over our shoulder. It's not the only way, but it's something that would certainly help. Now I want to turn it over to Andrea and Lauren, who can tell you what the impasse did to their members and what their members are still doing to try to recover. Um, Andrew, do you want to take the lead on that? And then we'll send it over to Lauren, just because you're the senior member of our awesome group of <laughs> human sure. service providers. But I do think that you guys have an amazing story to tell about what you experienced, kind of the hangover that you're still experiencing, and what the final vision is for what you need the state to do to get you where we need to be. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Comptroller Mendoza. We are so grateful to have such a fierce advocate in you um, at the making, drawing attention to this important work. So I, I'm, I'm grateful. I love you. <laughs> no, we do. You guys are awesome. Thank you. So, you know, I think um, one thing that's important to note is that a healthy human service sector is essential to a healthy Illinois. Because at the core of what we do is that we, as collectively, is that we help prepare people so that they can participate in our society, right? We help people achieve well-being so that they are safe and healthy and they're able to be a part of the work that, that we all do to build our communities to, so everyone benefits when we have a strong human service sector. And, um, you know, so people need that sturdy foundation to, to move forward. Um, so during the budget impasse, I had the, the privilege of chairing the Pay Now Illinois Coalition that sued um, the governor um, to try to get human service bills paid because we didn't have a legal 
way to get paid. And, um, you know, this was across the sector. It wasn't just children and youth issues, which is my sort of day job. (laughs) Um, But this was us saying, hey, everybody, all these services are interconnected. You know, it's not, um, it's, it's, it's the domestic violence shelters, it's the mental health center, it's the addiction treatment, it's the child care. Like, this is how families live their lives. And if you are a family that needs support, you might need support from more than one sector. And there's no one organization that does it all. It's the, it's the collective um, is how we build that healthy human service sector. And what we saw, the ripple effects of that budget impasse are still being felt today because we had two years of lost opportunity to invest in the people who are at the heart of this work. We had two years of lost opportunity to invest in the technology that is increasingly mandatory for us to do this work. And we had two years of lost opportunity to innovate and to um, participate in strategic thinking that would help fill gaps and move the system forward. Instead, at, during that time, um, as the Comptroller described so eloquently, organizations were just really in an um, emergency life lifeboat kind of situation where you're throwing everything and trying to maintain the mission and keep the doors open there was no opportunity to think strategically or you know you couldn't say to someone who needed help today like go away I'm working on my strategic plan or yes I'd like to spend a hundred thousand dollars on an electronic health record system when I'm actually laying off people right and left at the front door mm-hmm. so so those were you know some of the challenges and so we we of course we lost people who, who fled the sector for more um, safe harbors. Um, and then it's a challenge then to, to recruit people into our field when, they, when it has such a bad reputation. You know, to be honest, if people look and they say, wow, this is not a stable place, am I going to put my career in this, uh, in this space? You know, mm-hmm. am I going to take a chance on human services? Maybe I'd be better off in, you know, working for a hospital or, a, you know, I was going to say schools, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I have a child on, uh, on strike today, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, um, Anyway, but that, that's the kind of opportunity cost that we had that is sort of invisible in addition to the, the organizational closures and things like that. And so today, I think there's some really specific ways in which we're, we continue to struggle. You know, so we have a sector-wide workforce crisis. And this is the result of uh, low unemployment, which is good, um, but low pay, which is not good. And, and honestly, this is hard work. These frontline jobs are hard work. The supervisors have a hard job too, and so we're we're enticing people with, um, you know, they have other alternatives. They're not getting paid very well. They're doing a, um, a hard job, and so we end up with these really untenable workforce high turnover rates of, in some places, I've heard of fifty and sixty percent turnover. And if you don't think that's expensive, it is, and it also hurts people that we try to serve. So, for example, in foster care, we associate work, workforce turnover is associated with additional length of time in the system. So a child could be adopted or returned home, and instead they're languishing in foster care because their caseworkers are turning over and they're not having an opportunity to build those relationships, move the cases forward, get the legal documents in place, and all that sort of thing. So it has real-world implications. It's not just a business line cost. Um, 
You know, and then that workforce crisis is exacerbated in some ways by something that was good that happened this year, which was we raised the minimum wage in, in Chicago it's, um, and, and across the state. But the challenge is our funding has to adjust to make sure that we're able to accommodate those rising wages. We want to pay our workers, and in fact, we want to pay them better than minimum wage. That's the thing. A lot of these jobs require a bachelor's degree in a human services field, and I'm sure that none of you went to school thinking, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get a job in my field working at minimum wage mm-hmm. and pay off my student loans and you know move forward in this economy. That's really not the way we want to set that up. And then finally, I think um, another big impact goes back to that opportunity cost I was talking about where we, um, as a state, we are moving forward to try to innovate and and, um, streamline services with Medicaid managed care. We're trying to ask providers to participate in value-based payment arrangements and things like that. But truly, providers are not ready. We surveyed over 130 human service providers across the state last winter, and we found that Um, Most providers don't even have a Medicaid managed care contract. Only a third report that they have the kind of billing systems and data collection infrastructure that is sufficient to support these kinds of contracts. Um, And that most worrisome, the smallest community-based providers and the providers primarily serving people of color were the least ready to participate in this new contracting environment. And that's worrisome because our Medicaid population here in Illinois is primarily people of color. That's the majority population. And so if we're saying that people don't have um, access to care, um, they don't have a choice of provider, or they may not have a choice of a provider who understands their their cultural lived experience, maybe speaks their language, you know, these are real challenges for be- people being able to really access the kind of um, care and support that they need. So those are just a few examples. I'll, I'll let my colleagues take it from here, but, um, you know, I appreciate having the opportunity to speak to you all on this topic. Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, Andrea is truly amazing. I mean, I I got to know her pretty early on in my tenure when we, uh, you know, she came representing this whole coalition of organizations that literally had to sue the state of Illinois to to try to get funding. And you didn't win that lawsuit. No, we lost. But thankfully, (laughs) thankfully, um, you know, the budget came to... An end, right? The, sta- the standstill came to an end, and then our office was able to immediately prioritize these populations of, of providers that hadn't been. And even during the budget impasse, we tried our best to expedite funds that were owed from prior administrations, right? From prior years, fiscal years, and that's kind of how they made it through. And I remember doing a an analogy of what it felt like to be me that you're kind of dealing with the starving population, and all you have is a breadstick like an anemic one at that, right? Which is essentially like your old bills that you were due. And you had to cut off a little piece to give to this group so they'd survive just one more day. It's not going to give them any nutrition. They're going to get no vitamins from it. They're still going to be painfully hungry, but they might not die that day. And that's kind of what it felt like. And that's what it felt like for these folks who were, you know, having a, they had, like, especially think about the domestic violence folks, right, who weren't even included in the temporary budget that had passed. They'd done, like, a short-term six-month budget for a little while, uh, and the domestic violence shelters had entirely been left out. And I remember going to visit these centers, and 
these women who are so dedicated to their mission who are working for free. And that just should not happen because the alternative is people are going to die in this state if they didn't work for free. But, you know, it's just not okay. You walked into, you know, a whole nother line of mess. Andrea was dealing through the 736 days at the helm. Lauren, talk to us about your experience so far, what you've walked into, and what's it going to take for you to be a lot happier when it comes to how things are moving in this direction <laughs> for this state. Is this on? Yes. Um, thank you. you can so move it closer to you. Okay. Let's see. Thank you um, so so much, Andrea um, and Susanna. It's such an honor to uh, be able to participate in this panel with uh, such incredible leaders who have been fighting the good fight for all of these years. Um, and as was mentioned, I am very um, new to this particular position at Illinois Partners. Um, I actually started my career. Uh, as a caregiver for a woman with severely advanced rheumatoid arthritis who needed assistance with all activities of daily living. And then at night, I uh, was working in an in-house drug and alcohol rehabilitation center, um, working the overnight shift. And these jobs, as has been mentioned over and over again, they are not easy. They are they're difficult. They don't just wear you out physically. Um, they wear you out emotionally. Um, they're incredibly, incredibly difficult. And they're, they're minimum wage, oftentimes. And thinking about um, the work that our providers do, as was mentioned, Illinois Partners is a coalition of around 800 human service organizations representing every legislative district across the state. And they are truly working with people at every stage of the life cycle. So everything from child care to after-school programs to workforce development, um, care for older adults, and then all everything in between, um, supporting people with immigration services or um, disability rights and advocacy. These are fundamental to community well-being, these programs. And I have heard time and time again in these early days in my travels around the state um, that the budget impasse, it, it compounded upon a systemic issue that they had been facing for years. And as was mentioned by the comptroller, this, is, this has been a 20-year trend of uh, funding decreasing for human services. It was at 26%. Human service appropriations were at 26% in 1997, and now they're at just above 16% um, today. And while there were increases, and we can't negate the importance of actually having a budget, and there is a, a breath of relief, I think, for a lot of people that they were not in this tense moment anymore. But the ramifications are still there. There are people who had to lay off workers. There are people who had to um, close programs or, or close their doors altogether. So at Illinois Partners, um, Judith Gethner, who was my predecessor and is a fierce, fierce advocate um, for human services, she was doing so much work um, not only to advocate for um, our historic levels of funding to be appropriated to human services, but also for all of us to reframe the way we think about and talk about human services. I think it's really easy for everyone to draw a correlation to having a strong healthcare system or having a strong education system, that these are keys to not just individual well-being, but also community well-being. But if you remove mental health, from health care, or stable housing from accessible health care, or if you only look at the education system but you don't acknowledge what it would be like to have to learn a curriculum that's in a language that you don't speak in your own home, or you're going home after school and you're not able to um, 
have dinner. These are things that they're integral to community well-being, and we have to reframe the way we think about it. These aren't just extras or, oh, this would be great to have, and they're not just happening to those people over there. This isn't about, oh, those, those poor and needy people. Like, human services affect all of us, mm-hmm. and they affect me, they affect my family, um, and we each are responsible for emphasizing the importance of investing in it. So it's been an absolute um, privilege to inherit an organization that has been fighting this fight for, for so many years. Um, but the fight isn't over. So, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. So I'm thinking we can open up to questions, hopefully. Hopefully there are lots of questions. Um, okay. Very first question from Brenda Rigney. What revenue side changes do you think would be the most dependable outside of the potential graduated income tax structure if Illinois Human Services funding is to increase adequately? Who would like to begin that discussion? Andy? Well, I, I mean, I'm not a, t- a revenue expert, um, but I know that our uh, our tax structure is fairly outdated and based on a pretty uh, agricultural economy and an agricultural and manufacturing economy that we don't have so much anymore. Um, I mean, we have it, but it's not as it's not so dominant. And so, I think probably there are um, tax reforms and restructuring that can be made, but that's really out of my world of expertise, to be honest. Do you want to add here? I, I think sometimes an underlying component uh, and something that we've heard a lot at Illinois Partners is, oh, philanthropy should cover that. Or, oh, do you need to raise more money? Like, go to the foundations. But um, Judith uh, Gethner and the team at Illinois Partners produced a very compelling report that I'd be happy to share after that really shows that um, there is no other way to um, increase funding to human services than through than through our government, and they have a responsibility. And no amount of philanthropic funding can or should compensate for our government's responsibility to invest in the well-being of our citizens. And um, I also think sometimes we're afraid to talk about the graduated income tax, but that is something that's absolutely um, one of the most important decisions that we're going to make in the next year, and I think is really really important to not shy away of um, the importance of that for human services. And, and if I could, Lauren, you just reminded me of something. If you all have phones at your table, Google the preamble to the Illinois State Constitution. Oh, yeah. Seriously. It's actually right it's, I told them to turn off their phones, but go ahead. But they, can, they cannot. Don't let them ring. But, like, look at the preamble to the Illinois State Constitution. I actually have it written right here, ironically. Uh, um, it's, which It's it pretty says, amazing. We go have ahead. a responsibility to provide for the health, safety, and welfare of the people, to assure legal social and economic justice and provide opportunity for the fullest development of the individual that's human services bingo (laughs) yeah look i mean i've said this many times and i'll continue to say it if we get nothing else right as a government we should absolutely get right taking care of those worse off the whether it's the most vulnerable who can't fend for themselves or folks who just need the help to be self-sufficient because when they're doing better, we're all doing better. But as a result, our state, that's the foundation of who we are as a people and our values. Now, let's not forget that these services that these providers, you know, 
do day in and day out, we ask them to do them as a state, right? They're not like seeking the business from us. Like the state of Illinois realized that it was much more economically feasible and on top of the fact they could provide better services to constituents by not doing this in-house and actually partnering with not-for-profits who have this like heart-driven mission to provide these services. They could provide the services at lower cost, better outcomes. So when that first started, made a ton of sense. It still makes sense today. What doesn't make sense is that the payments have not kept up with the mission. We are asking people to do a job, and then we're leaving them in the lurch when it comes to paying them appropriately for doing that job. So that's not okay. It's never okay, and that needs to change. Now, with limited revenues being what they are, our office, so we set aside $2.5 billion, and Kevin, correct me if I'm wrong here because my cash guy, but $2.5 billion to prioritize human services. So I never want to hear from a service provider that they're going to miss a payroll because we're going to prioritize them over pretty much anything else. We make our debt service payments, we make our pension payments, and we make our you know Medicaid and other education payments, but those human service providers are being prioritized by this administration. So really, just spread the word amongst yourselves that we don't want to hear about you missing a barrel after you've missed it, or the week before you're going to miss it. Like, work with our office. You have an ally in the office who's going to make sure that as long as I know that there's a big payment that's coming, I can plan for it. Right, But we are prioritizing the services in the absence of a real plan from state government to put you at the front of the line. And it's not a favor that we're doing to social services. We're actually helping our bottom line as a state fiscally by properly investing in human services at a rate that will keep other costs that are way much more expensive down long term. So this is what we have to talk about. We have to acknowledge that the state has an obligation that we have not been meeting for a long, long time. And not meeting it is actually more expensive than actually meeting it. Thank you, Comptroller Mendoza. Okay. Now, without sounding too much like the uh, moderators on the presidential debates, (laughs) answers. Short, sweet, no more speeches, okay? Thank you. Oh, boy. Uh, This is from Terry Jens, who's with Lutheran Social Services. Um, Terry says there's a death gap of 30 years between the lifespans of residents who live in Streeterville to Englewood. Poverty and income inequality are systematic. How can the government put more economic resources, etc., in the west and south sides and partner with social services to make meaningful changes. Okay, who wants to address that? Well, they have to do it. Again, we need the revenues to do it. So all of us can agree that we want better things for everyone, right? Pick your corner of an issue that you care about. It requires funding. So number one, it's a it's a reality check as a government is where we're going to prioritize funds. Number two, if you don't have enough funds, you have to figure out how you're going to access the funds that you need to make these things happen. And ultimately do a cost-benefit analysis, which I would argue if we actually do that, we're going to save money by investing in areas that are more preventative versus treatment-oriented, right, or after the fact. Um, But it it takes actual work. And I'm going to add one thing, which I haven't spoken about publicly at all. You know, there's there's a revenue side of things. You can cut costs here. You're never going to cut your way out of properly funding things that need to be funded. But as an office, our office right now is spending a lot of time trying to innovate. 
and and by our office, I mean the controller for the state of Illinois, um, an office that maybe in years past had be, had been seen as just more administrative, right? We pay the bills. What does a controller do? Most people don't even know. You know, hopefully by now more people know what we do. But more importantly, I, I see like I have a vision for this office, and that is by modernizing our technology systems, our payroll and our accounting systems to be smart systems, not just systems that can execute a search warrant, you know, not search warrant, I'm sorry, a, <laughs> a warrant. We've been hearing a lot about search warrants lately. Yeah. Uh, kind of fascinated by it, actually. But in any event, um, actual warrants, which are the checks that we pay out, you know, I don't just want the systems that we've had in the past and a recreation of that, but actually smart systems that can, can you imagine a controller's office that would be the most trusted source for financial data in the state of Illinois, that at any given moment, I could partner with a, 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 a non-for-profit and show how investing in this area is going to save us money in that area, and actually do some predictive modeling and data analysis that would actually lead to fundamental changes in policy down the road as a government, because the controller's office can be much more than what people might perceive it to be, which is just an office that manages finances, but that actually becomes a real legitimate player in crafting policy in a way that will ultimately save taxpayer dollars and make sure that you as a taxpayer are getting the best return on investment while improving final outcomes. That's Thank where you. we want Thank to be you. as an office. But that, that, I mean, I'm just saying it's not the speech, but that's kind of like, the, it's not just about adding more money to a problem. It's how are we going to allocate scarce resources and put them to best use. Okay, so. we've got Lauren caught my eye first here and she said I have something to say. Then we'll go over to Andy. So I think when we're trying to address and understand systemic racism, and that's really what this is about. Yep. Like, let's not beat around the bush. It's about how, how do we, as human service providers, unintentionally or sometimes intentionally not address how this issue is affecting the way that we provide our services? And this is, these are hard questions, and it's hard to turn the mirror on ourselves and think about how are the ways that we're providing services perpetuating systems of inequity? And I think that um, it's something that I um, care deeply about, and I know, our, I know service providers care deeply about as well. Um, Illinois Partners did research that showed that um, Latinx neighborhoods in Chicago got some of the least amount of funding per capita from the state than anywhere else. And looking and having research that is intersectional in its approach, that has disaggregated data that can really dive into how do we address this, how do we address this issue, and how do we as human service providers take ownership of that is something that I really want to and will prioritize in the future. Great. Andy? Thank you, Lauren. Um, it's similar, I want to just build on that and say, again, to your to your point, the racial disparities are real and they're not um, justifiable, and that we need to take a racial equity approach when we try to resolve these and eliminate these disparities. And that's why that kind of capacity building that I was talking about earlier is so important because there are organizations in those communities struggling and trying to make a difference. There are tons of people in Englewood, as your example, um, who care and who are trying to make a difference, but they don't have access to, say, you know, a multi-hundred uh, thousand dollar billing system that would allow them to bill Medicaid to be able to provide those services. And so, and what we hear from funders, I hear a lot of frustration from funders where they say, I don't want to pay for things that Medicaid can pay for. So they're getting frustrated, like a foundation or another governmental entity might say, I don't want to pay for case management if you can bill Medicaid and pay for case management. But if that organization does not have the capacity to do that, then that work doesn't 
doesn't get done. And if the funder says, I'm frustrated, I don't want to pay for duplicative work, then the resources just aren't there. You know, so I think that that's a real example of how we would need to bring that capacity building to bear. I, Very I good. I add one more thing about this specific to the 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 African American population or underserved minority populations. I think it's absolutely disgusting to see the number of denial rates, the rates of denials from managed care organizations, specifically in areas of underserved populations or minority populations, for being just honest here. Um, I went to visit Jackson Hospital. Uh, we were at the Loretto Hospital. You're talking about 34% denial rates, 36% denial rates from managed care organizations for a service that they would have approved on the private side. 2% denial rates on private versus 34% in minority communities with managed care organizations. That is systemically racist as far as I'm concerned, and that's something that we need to address because it comes down to the nuts and bolts of people dying in hospitals or hospitals having to take their actual um, employees and put them towards appealing things that it should, should have never been denied to begin with instead of providing medical services to their patients. Thank you, Susanna. This question is from City Club member Susan Gordon with the Lurie Children's Hospital. She wants to know, are there other states that have excellent human service programs and outcomes that Illinois could learn from? There's 48 other ones that are doing better than we are. (laughs) I actually, interestingly enough, have a little one-pager here. So, if I may... Cheap, please. Okay. Um, So this is a national analysis of reassessing human service reimbursement rates. Now, this isn't up to date with the most recent reimbursement rates, but in comparison, this was a 10-state comparison. Again, my predecessor, Judith Gethner, um, conducted this research. Um, And when you look at this 10-state comparison, Illinois ranks very low. The highest we get is a a middle ranking in terms of reimbursement rates for these crucial services. So this is everything from mental health to care for older adults, substance, um, substance use treatment, early intervention, foster care, we're, we're ranking very low. And there are, is a lot um, that we can do to continue um, to build that. But I think much of it, and Andy, you can speak to this too, starts with, with reimbursement. And Lauren, where could people get some of these little charts that you have <laughs> On that Illinois are just Partners so handy? Web- website, um, <laughs> IllinoisPartners.org. Um, okay, yeah. IllinoisPartners.org. Andy. So um, I think that there are other states that are doing better in some child welfare measures. For example, we are worst in the nation on, yeah, on length of stay in the, in the child welfare system and um, permanency. So, so there's a lot of room for us to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have looked to our, uh, our peer in New York State where they have established a Medicaid technical assistance center. Um, in New York, while it's a much bigger state than ours, it's similar in having a very large metropolitan area, having, you know, they have upstate, we have downstate, they've got big um, uh, cities outside of the large metropolitan area just like we do, and also very diverse um, uh, racial and socioeconomic diversity in their state. And they've managed to establish this Medicaid Technical Assistance Center that helps community-based providers to um, be able to participate in um, Medicaid billing, for example, and they're able to get federal reimbursement for it. And so we've been trying to get it, that something like that here in Illinois, and if we could do that successfully, we could get Medicaid dollars to help pay for that kind of community capacity building that we're talking about. Thank you. Okay, we have time for just a few more questions. Uh, this is from Barbara Shaw with Chicago Survivors, Inc. Barb, where are you? 
Oh, right over here to my far left. Interesting question. As they all are, is it possible for the state to move to an advanced system of payment and reimbursement rather than requiring agencies to spend first and wait for payment? I guess this is directed mm. at the controller. Yeah, I'm not... I mean, I'm not... Send me that question, actually, in an email, or just give me the paper, because I go. will... I don't know the answer off the top of my head, Barbara, but I'm happy to look into that. Um, it's... Yeah, it's a, it's a compl- you know it's frustrating for me as controller uh, even how the current system is right where the state agencies essentially sit on the vouchers. I don't want to say they're sitting on them more than they need to right now, right? But I mean, I know it was happening under the prior administration, and then we put heat on them, and they started sending us vouchers. But um, before we did the debt transparency act and all that, I couldn't see at all pretty much any of the vouchers, not a single one that was at the agency level. So I can't actually pay a bill, I don't know if you know this, unless if I've received the voucher from the state agency that incurred the contract with the provider. And so, I mean, I kind of wish there was a way that I could even, I mean, I kind of wish that wasn't the system, right? Because just because I have the voucher in my shop doesn't mean I can pay it, but I can at least plan for it, you know, because I know it's there. Um, But in terms of of your question being specific to the advanced system of payments and reimbursements other than requiring agencies to spend first. I mean, there's Medicaid things that come into play with that, right, where they have to spend it and then we get a match. Or, But I, I don't know specifically to your question what the best answer is. Kevin, do you have any suggestions on that? Sounds like Actually. a good question for the uh, well, Kevin's like, okay, uh, controller table to do welfare. some research on. Yeah. In child Andy, welfare. a short one. I have two more questions I'd like well, to squeeze I was just going to say, in child welfare, there is a way people, providers do get advance payments they get paid like on the 28th or 29th of the month for the month coming oh okay and they true it up at the end of the year so it is possible to do it um and it's not like people are getting away with something you know i mean well yeah that is true and there are some some areas where that happens and then if if we overpaid you can you can take it off the next side right but it's not most of it is not the case okay this question is from city club member Jackie Davidoff with Davidoff Strategies. Jackie, where are you? Oh, right down here. Hey, Jackie. We've been discussing low wages, low recognition, lack of acknowledgement of the human services workforce professionals and the crisis this presents. Do you have some short and long-term strategies that could be initiated to respond to this workforce crisis? So who would like to begin with that? Andy. Sure. I mean, obviously, a big key to that is is wages, you know, and and that's a very important part of attracting people and retaining them in the field. But wages is only part of the story. I mean, a big part of what keeps people in is feeling successful in their jobs. So that means that you are adequately trained and supported, that you have the kind of supervision that, um, you know, is able to help you through when you're working on those tough cases, um, that that um, training includes real-world simulations, if you can, you know, so people really understand. It's one thing to, to understand on a theoretical level what it's like to make a home visit. It's a whole other thing 
to make a home visit, you know. Um, and so being able to have that kind of place in the field where we're able to mentor and support people so that maybe you, when you start, you don't start with a full caseload, you start with a ramped-up caseload. I mean, there's lots of strategies and I, things that I think we can do to help people feel valued and supported because, you know, most everybody comes to this work because they care, you know, because they're mission-driven it's it's when we drive them out of the field is when we can't pay them enough and they don't feel safe or respected. Mm-hmm. Good. Lauren, do you want to respond? No, also? I would I would agree with everything Andy Andy just said. I think so much of this does come it it does come down to wages, but there are also a lot of non-monetary benefits that we can provide our employees. Um, but that doesn't make the jobs easier. These are hard jobs. Um, and having support and trainings um, and um, good managers, all of these things are important, but really ultimately so much of what this comes down to is funding and increasing reimbursement rates and, and paying, um, paying our workers. Okay, our final question. From City Club member Teresa Lippo. Teresa, where are you at? Right down here. Um, What impact has the Trump administration had on human service funding in Illinois? And a little footnote to that. You know, Mr. Trump's going to be speaking in Chicago, I believe, next week or so. But guess who had him first? In 2016, when he was only a candidate. City Club of Chicago. Sorry. And he jilted us this week for Tom Ricketts. Okay. Who wants to respond? Trump spending. So we we had um, one of our member agencies is Ignite, uh, which is a program on the south side of Chicago or serving the city of Chicago, um, serving runway and homeless youth. And they just found out um, a week, a couple weeks ago, that their federal funding to do street outreach was eliminated by the Trump administration. And um, you know, these are runaway and homeless youth, primarily are um, young people who uh, a big proportion of them, a disproportionate number of them, are LGBT young people who don't feel safe at home or, or welcome, and so they come out into the streets. And unfortunately, what we know from research is that when kids are runaway and on the streets, they are at great risk of human trafficking. You know, I think it's something like 25% are approached um, by a trafficker within 48 hours of being on the street. So it, this kind of street outreach is incredibly important. And so when you see organizations, you know, lose their funding overnight, it's a real challenge. And, you know, I, I, and I, I know um, I don't want to speak for folks in the immigration community, but they've certainly um, seen a great de- increased demand for their services as well. And also a, a real chilling effect on people being able to feel safe enough to reach out for service. You know, mm-hmm. that's also happening. So um, another Trump administration era policy we've learned, we used to call, we, we call young people involved in the justice system, young people involved in the justice system, but the Trump administration wants to call them offenders and delinquents, you know. I mean, it's like they're kids. They're kids. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that we're seeing happening across the board. I don't know if either of you have something to add. No, I was just going to say, particularly with immigration services, the new public charge rule, I mean, these are, I mean, we could talk about this for years, but this is, he's not a friend to human services. I'll just say that. And Comptroller Mendoza, do you have anything to say? You did tell me to keep it short, so new president, please. (laughs) Thank you.